Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I think most of you know uh, where we have been in our series, but I'm going to spend some time recapping as I do. Uh, one of the lessons that I continue to learn is that repetition is not a bad thing. So, um, so here we go for the rest of you. It's all good. But uh, we've been talking in this series about a, a fascinating statement that Jesus makes in John, uh, in the Gospel of John, and we're, we're all familiar with the statement, right? We're all familiar with Jesus declaring that uh, what his work was, was finished. Here's what it says, and then, and then we explored all of the other components to it, so if you want to trigger that and put that up there, it'd be helpful. There we go. Sometimes when your mom is running ProPresenter, She's paying you back for all that time when you were a kid being trouble. Anyway, okay, so it's after this, Jesus, and this is a really important idea here, okay? Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished. I don't know how long that's going to take to sink in for some of you guys, but it is a massively big statement that Jesus knew all things had been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, and then he says... Teleo, which is the Greek word, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And over the past couple of weeks, five weeks in, uh, specifically, we have been talking about all of these ideas or some of the ideas that Jesus had finished, things that he had accomplished. By no means did I set out to give an exhaustive list of this, but I did set out to cover some ideas that I find uh, one important and two fascinating uh, to my mind. So we talked in week one about the idea of having a clear conscience. And we all know that scripture tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, and that's a nice thing to read on a paper, but it's another thing to believe it here and another thing to believe it here. And what the scripture says is that God has not only cleansed our bodies, but that he has washed our conscience clean. And so uh, we don't have to worry about the dead works of the past. We don't have to worry about our past really at all. Instead, now we get to look to our Savior. We get to look to our future glory and future hope uh, and rest in him in that. And so we talked about a clean conscience. That led us into uh, the next week, which is where we started learning that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that is not to be understood, I hope you guys understand this, that is not to be understood as Nathan is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you each are a temple of the Holy Spirit, but the scripture is very clear that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The reason why I stress that is because Lone Ranger Christianity is not something the Bible communicates. It's not something the Bible uh, even uh, opens the doors for. Christianity is a corporate thing. Christianity is a together thing. We're a family, amen? Uh, right? We're brothers and sisters. And if we are true brothers and sisters, we should be operating in love and compassion and kindness towards one another because that's the spirit that dwells inside of us. And we ought, probably ought not to be acting like brothers like Cain and Abel. Amen? <laughs> right? So, so we're supposed to be a temple of God. We're a temple together. And that what's beautiful is that we're a temple that is, um, that is containing or that is uh, interacting with the Spirit of God. And I think that there is, uh, there is a lot to be said about that. 
In week two, we didn't just learn that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit as a church, but we also learned what the, uh, what the temple functions were. And I encourage you to go back to week two, because if you study the Old Testament functions of the temple, and then you look to us as a temple of the Holy Spirit, you're going to see that all of those functions are actually part of our life. We're supposed to make judgments on things in a holy way or a righteous way. We're supposed to give deliverance to those who have confessed their sins. We're supposed to um, bring an end to calamity and destruction. That, that is our responsibility. We are a people who are uh, changing the world around us. We're supposed to be responding to foreigners with welcome arms. We're to be a people that are all about, um, about victory and even deliverance from war and oppression and those kinds of things. And I know that some hear these messages and they go, oh great, here's a political message. I don't give two hoots about American politics with this. What I do care about is that God says it and we need to get our filters out of the way and realize what he's called us to. Amen? Right? We get, we get caught in this. And we're going to talk about that a little, bit, a little bit later this morning. So, rightly so, as we, talked about a royal, uh, as we talked about a temple, we also talked about a royal priesthood in the, in the following week. And that each and every one of us is now able to engage with God personally. We don't, we don't, need, anything, uh, we don't need anything to approach God. We're actually to boldly approach the throne of grace. That doesn't mean that we don't have a mediator between God and man. That's Christ Jesus. But we understand that to be, a, uh, we understand that to be through the, the lens of a mediator with regard to salvation. There's, there's a direct connection between us and the Father. Father. How do I know this? Jesus taught us to pray that way. Our Father who art in heaven. He didn't say, pray this way. Oh, Jesus, tell our Father who art in heaven. He didn't say that. He, he told us that we can pray to him or taught us that we can pray to him. And in that royal priesthood, we learned a lot about what it means to look like God intends us to look, which is a holy set-apart people. We talked about fruit, and we talked about how that reveals the root of our lives and and we discussed how the world should be able to look on uh, God's royal priesthood, God's people, and be able to see or de de divine the will of God. They should be able to see us, and they should know what God stands for. Um, do you think that they do that now? Do you think that they look at us and know exactly what God stands for? Not always. I think most of the time, and this is just a, this is a problem with American Christianity, just kind of throwing out a little bit of a, a punch in the nose here. I think what most people see is what um, they believe that God is just what our politics are, or they believe that God is about what our, uh, our opinions are, right? What we're against and all this other stuff. But they should see something different. And here's what the scripture says. The scripture says that we're supposed to be a people who love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We're supposed to be a people who love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. We're supposed to be this kind of people, not a kind of people that have a particular color with their name or their affiliation. That's just not who we're supposed to be. I don't think people see us and divine the will of God. I think people see us and divine the will of our political party, and that's pretty bad, okay? So I think we need to change that. Uh, that led us to week four and week five, where we talked about uh, God granting us something better as, um, as followers of Jesus and as those who are a product of the first fruits of the kingdom of God. 
And that led us into week five last week where we talked about the author and the finisher of our faith. And the the beauty of this is that what, what was better for us is that Jesus declares it is finished uh, and we have, we have entered into a, a fixed, um, a new creation, a fixed creation, a right creation. How many of you know that God stepped back from the world when he created it and called it very good? I told you what that meant last week. It's really God stepping back and saying, my machine is finished. I've done it. I did what I set out to do, right? And he set it in motion. How many of you also know we broke it? How about... How about you need to know you broke it? There you go. Okay, so we, we broke this machine. And then when Jesus comes and fulfills everything that there was to be fulfilled and declares it is finished on the cross, it is the God, the Lord of glory, the God of the universe, stepping back from his creation and say, there, I fixed it. It's finished. It's done. I've done what I set out to do. And so it's a very important thing to understand what God means when he says he's the author and he is the finisher of our faith. Something has been accomplished. Today, I want to talk to you about what it means to live as a part of an unshakable kingdom. An unshakable kingdom. Here's a passage of scripture from Hebrews chapter 12 that really sets the stage for us. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In that context, it's speaking of God, okay? Don't refuse God who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him, this is referring to Moses, him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him, God, who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And then look what he goes into next. He says, This expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, so in light of all of that, And then he repeats himself, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, what are we to do? Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So here's here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about an unshakable kingdom. We're going to dabble in an understanding of truth that I think you need to to grow in. I think we all need to grow in. And then if we have time, I want to share with you a pretty cool idea when it comes to us being priests and how that ties in with a passage in Revelation. It's just a fascinating thing. But for right now, we've got to talk about uh, being a part of an unshakable kingdom. And I want to start the time off by telling you what is practical, the application to all of this. What you go home with today. This happens all the time in churches. You hear a message and you say, okay, but what do I do with it? How many of you think that way? Okay, but what do I do with it? Here is what you do with it right off the bat, right? We belong, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And in light of that truth, in light of something that is not like earthly things, things made by human hands that can be shaken, but something made by God which will remain, which cannot be shaken, since we believe that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, our lives should be marked by this, gratitude. This is fascinating, because that's not always what our lives are marked by, right? 
But let me tie it deeper for you. It's not just gratitude, man, Lord, I'm glad I, uh, I have a house. I'm glad I have healthy kids. I'm glad I have a wife. I'm glad I have blah, 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 blah. It's not just about that. It's about an understanding that I am part of a kingdom. I am grateful that I am part of something that cannot fall, that cannot break down, that will not fade away like the politics of the world today, like the nations of the world today. The reason why it's so important for us not to put all of our faith and all of our trust in the kingdoms of this planet is because they are being shaken. And I'll prove it to you in a little bit. They're already being shaken and they will not stand long term. So in many cases, what we do is we fight and we defend and we put our flag in the ground and we stand on this high horse of uh, American politics or whatever it is that we do and we miss the whole point. We miss the whole point. We're over here fighting with people over what they think about X, Y, and Z and we're not in gratitude trusting that we belong to a kingdom that can't be shaken even if America flew away tomorrow. Right? Do I think we should uh, not honor our country? Do I think we should forget the things around us? No. You should care for those things. You should be a good steward of those things. But you cannot put your faith or your trust in those things. Why? Because they will be shaken, they are being shaken, and they will fall. But we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. I belong to something that won't fall. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to be grateful for that all the days of my life. And then the writer of Hebrews ties this in with something powerful. He says, by which we may offer to God. I want you to really understand that sentence. Gratitude is the instrument by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. How many of you know Romans 12, 1 and 2? Right? We are supposed to uh, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. And most of us look at it and go, present your body as a living sacrifice. What in the world does that mean? In this context, it means simply this. Be grateful for the kingdom you belong to, and that is a spiritual act of worship. Be grateful. It's a pleasing act of worship. You notice there's no guitars attached to that? There's no drums attached to that. There's not a piano. You don't need an organ. You don't even need a voice in this. It comes from your heart. It doesn't mean all those things are wrong or bad. It simply means that you can worship God every day of your life, every moment of your life. Why? Because you're grateful. How many of you feel tremendously grateful all the time? Amanda does. Mark and Emmy does. Mark better. He's got Emmy, right? I mean, I don't know why she feels grateful, but that's a different story, right? So, so there, there are people, we look at this and we go, man, I feel grateful. I have to be honest with you, though. I don't feel grateful all the time. And let me tell you why I don't feel grateful all the time. Because I forget the truth. The reason you're not grateful for your family, the reason you're not grateful for the people around you, I'm not talking about those bad situations, but the reason why you're not grateful for situations and things around you is often because you've overlooked them. You've forgotten about them. And the reason why we're not grateful and therefore not worshiping God in this spiritual way in his kingdom is because we actually put too much trust in the shakable things of our world and not in the unshakable kingdom that we belong to. Okay? 
So it's really important for us to understand this. We received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude. Every one of us, let's show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. For our God is, and this is where everybody starts to panic, for our God is a consuming fire. Now what I'm about to tie this into is going to make more sense of that consuming fire. But what I want you to know is that the change that happens in the New Testament, the change that happens in the mind of the writer of Hebrews, is that now, in light of what God has done, even as a consuming fire... We don't grovel before him. We don't cower before him. We're not in terror before him. What are we? We're grateful before him. That's a huge difference, right? God is a consuming fire, but what do I do? Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you rescued me. Thank you for the kingdom that surrounds me that will not fall. God is a consuming fire, but you don't have to be terrified by God. So we're going to tie in all of this by understanding what it means for us to live in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But we have to understand what it is that the writer of Hebrews is even talking about. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 18 through 25, we actually see the beginning of this story. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked Violently, the shaking that he's talking about. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. That sounds fun, right? The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up because that's what you do when God calls. Okay, next verse. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze. And many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. I want you to hold that in your mind, that the priests are to consecrate themselves. Or else the Lord will break out against them. Do you understand what it means for God to be a consuming fire to these people? It means scary. (laughs) It means a God who speaks in thunder and makes us run. Okay? So the next verse. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So Moses goes down and he gets the high priest, which is Aaron, or going to be the high priest, right? He gets Aaron and he brings him with him, okay? In this situation, God is on Sinai and God is giving the covenant of the law and the world is shaking because of it. The world is shaking because of it. Judges chapter 5, verses 4 through 5 says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. Do you guys notice the connection of what is taking place when the earth is shaken? Who's present? God is present. Because when God is present, things start to shake, okay? It's a fascinating idea. Now, that doesn't give any, any like, permission for the 
people in the Pentecostal world to shake violently. I just, I'm just saying that, okay? Because they're shaking out of terror. I'm just like pointing that out to you. Okay, Psalm chapter 68, verse 8. The earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Over and over and over, we have this really awesome idea. Now, Later on uh, in Hebrews, or just before the passage we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, we understand that the writer of Hebrews is actually talking about this particular event when he says that the earth is shaking, okay? So let's go to that. You guys have that up there. For you have not come to a mountain that that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. How many of you say, I just want to hear God's voice? (laughs) Okay, moving on, right? For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. They go on. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. God is a consuming fire, right? What did Moses respond with? What are we supposed to respond with? Gratitude. 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 Do we revere God? Yes, fine. But we are a grateful people. Why? Because the first kingdom is a kingdom made by men. It's a temple made by men. It's a system made by men. It shakes, it falls, but the kingdom that we're talking about does not move. Do you understand? Okay, so but you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. What did he set in contrast? Sinai, which Moses went to, and what we have come to is the church. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're not talking about a kingdom that falters, right? And to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So, it's at this point that the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, See to it that you don't refuse the one who speaks from heaven. They refused Moses, and what happened to them? They died, right? This is, they, they were warned from earth, and they didn't escape. But the one who speaks from heaven is the one we must heed, we must listen to. And then verse 26 of that same chapter says, And his voice shook the earth then... That was the first one. He shook the earth then. But now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And why? Because everything that is made of human hands is going to fall. And what will be left is what is pure. What is left will be that which is made of God. I want to take you to a very interesting passage. It's Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 5 and 6, or go 5 through 9, but um, the 
precursor to this is some encouragement to those who are faithful servants of God. You can read that on your own. But this is the word that is given to them. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, this is a very important prophecy, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. What is Haggai prophesying? By the way, Haggai is way, way after the Exodus. Okay? What is he prophesying? He's prophesying another thing. Not Sinai, but something else. I will shake all the nations. By the way, when the scripture talks about God shaking the heavens and the earth, he's also talking about shaking these governments that we put all of our trust in. He's going to shake the nations. Okay? Please understand that. And they will come with wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What are we looking for in a kingdom that doesn't shake? We're looking for a kingdom of peace. We're looking for a kingdom that has hope inside of it. This is an amazing thing. So we belong to a kingdom that can't be shaken. Now the question is, but Nathan, when did this start? When did this begin? Or is this something that is yet to come? It began, it was inaugurated when Jesus was on the cross. And it continues to this day to the point when everything that is shakable will fade away. And that which is God's will be the only thing that remains. Read Matthew 27, 51 with me. Matthew 27, 51. I think I put that in there, guys. I didn't. Okay. Turn with me to Matthew 27, 51. Very cool verse. Matthew is the only gospel writer who actually includes this in his text. In his account of Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And Jesus cried out, verse 50, sorry. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What was that temple? Made by God or made by man? Made by man. And it was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The shaking began. This is what Haggai is prophesying. He's prophesying of something coming that's going to break this whole system open, right? Jesus does this on the cross. The earth shakes and it continues to this day because God is establishing, he is establishing people inside of a kingdom that does not shake. But the world systems are all breaking apart, every single one of them, with with this in our minds, we have to begin to understand that every point of Jesus' life, everything that he did, everything that he fulfilled, even his declaration of it is finished, said my kingdom is here. You remember what Jesus says to the Pharisees when they are, they're, they're criticizing him and they're talking about the temple? He says to them, one greater than the temple is here. He is the greater temple. He tells them to tear this temple down in three days. He's going to rebuild it. And later in the chapter in the verse it says he was speaking of himself. Who is this great temple in whom we have security that never shakes? 
Jesus is the temple, church. He is the very stronghold that rescues us. And the reason why this temple that is Jesus covers the entire earth now, the reason that it's not just in some ridiculous off-corner place in a garden somewhere, the reason it covers everything is because in Jesus we are secure. And outside of Jesus, nothing is. There's nothing that has life outside of him. But inside of him, we are fully secure, fully at peace, fully at rest. This is why the Bible says there's one way to God. There's no other kingdom, guys. You can live outside of this kingdom, but you will fall. What sense does that make? It doesn't make sense. But yet, we keep propping up all these kingdoms. And here's why, in my opinion. Here's why. Because we have a problem understanding truth, I believe, in a right way. I think we understand truth as things that are, I think we understand truth only as the opposite of things that are false. But that's not what truth means in the scripture. I know you guys are, you guys are getting tired of this. You're like, how many words don't mean what we think they mean, Nathan? A lot of them, okay? A lot of them don't mean what you think they mean, right? So the word true uh, is alethanos, and in Hebrews 8, 2, and 9, 24, it talks about the true tabernacle, or the true temple. How many of you guys remember that? True tabernacle, right? But what is, what is the connotation in it referring to the true temple? It's not saying the true temple versus the false temple. Why? Because in, in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9, it's talking about the things that are in the spiritual realm being the true things, and the things that are on the earth being a copy. It doesn't say the things in the heaven are the true ones, and the things on the earth are false and bad. It simply says that they're a shadow. They're supposed to display something, okay? But here's our problem. We reverse things in our mind. We think things that are physical are reality. And we think things are, that are spiritual, or we think things are, that are physical are literal, and think things that are spiritual are non-literal. They're figurative things. The writer of Hebrews flips this whole thing upside down. He actually says the things that are spiritual are the literal things, and the physical things that you see, those are actually the figurative things. The reason why we're having a problem trusting in a kingdom that can't be shaken is because we keep looking at physical things and going, that's the real stuff. Isn't that true? How many of you trust things you can see much more than things you can't see? Quit. <laughs> Quit. You have to change it. You have to change it because the literal things are actually the spiritual things. The holy of holies is someplace where God is and we have a shadow of it down here. Jesus enters heaven and bleeds for us, and we see a cross down here. There is a literal thing, and then there is a shadow of that. There is a God who is king over all things, and he governs, and he governs well. But then we have shadows of it down here, earthly governments, and we go, put all your trust in them. Put all your faith in these things. This is not good, right? But we trust them because we can see them. We have to see this a different way. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, we see this under, uh, understanding or explanation of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness. Not the faithful and false witness, or the opposite of a false witness, although that can be understood there. The beginning of creation of God says this, Jesus is declaring something. What does this word true mean? 
It means that which is genuine or represents the real state of affairs. That which is genuine and represents the real state of affairs. It also means a prophetic fulfillment. Who is Jesus as the faithful and true witness? He's the faithful and prophetic fulfillment of what Moses was the foreshadow of. He's the prophetic fulfillment. He's the real article. He's the genuine thing, right? That's who Jesus is in everything that we see and everything that we do. We have to start understanding true in this light. Because when we start to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we don't just mean Jesus is the way, he's not false, and he's the life. We mean to say, Jesus means to say, he is the way, he is the genuine article, he is the one that represents the real state of affairs, he is the prophetic fulfillment, and therefore he is life. That's what he is communicating to us. That is what the heavenly temple is. That's the kingdom you belong to, even though it's hard for you to trust it because you can't see it. The kingdom of God, the the thing that cannot be shaken, is actually something that you and I belong to, and it is better than anything else. Every kingdom on this planet is false. Every kingdom on this planet is not genuine. Every kingdom on this planet does not represent the real state of affairs. Every kingdom on this planet, even America, church, is not a prophetic fulfillment of diddly squat. You guys are like, "Mm." grumble, grumble. I don't care, right? We have one kingdom, and we've got to get back to trusting it. And let me tell you why we need to trust it. Because the world needs to see us living for something more than we're living for. The world is actually just tired of Christians. Did you know that? (laughs) Turn to somebody and say, the world's tired of you. Do it, Mark, now. (laughs) Fine, I'll do it. (laughs) The world is tired of you. (laughs) I'm not. I love you. Anyway, okay. The world is tired of Christians, and they're tired of Christians for a very important reason. They're tired of Christians because we keep living for shakable things. We don't live for that which is unshakable. And it's proved in the fact that we're not even grateful for it. Are we? Right? We do church this way. We treat our brothers and sisters in Christ this way. We treat holiness this way. All of this stuff is just a leftover. We're like, yeah, we'll get to it sometime. Let me get back to my real life. (laughs) It's not the genuine article. Your real life is the fake life. Your real life is the thing that is not what you want. The thing that you need to be resting in is an unshakable kingdom. When that happens, trust me when I say this, when that happens, the world will look at us very different. But here's what that's going to take. That's going to take offending people on both sides of the aisle. Did you know that? You're going to care for the foreigner, and you're going to care for the the stranger in our world, and you're going to care for them without fail. But what's going to happen is people on your side are going to go, well, period. You love them. You like that? No. No, we don't like that. The only, (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and make some real enemies today. Happy Memorial Day! Anyway, right? Should I say this? Should I? Sarah goes, no, you shouldn't. 
Yeah, I'm too far gone, aren't I? Okay, so let me nuance this. Very important, very important. Um, the only kingdom that won't shake is God's kingdom. The only walls that need to be built are the kingdom walls that God has built, not our artificial ones, okay? And when we live in a country where what we do is we don't care about people, now listen, you think that this is like a liberal standing point. I don't really care what you think, because it's not. What I, am, what I am saying is this. We are a people who absolutely love no matter what. Does that mean we abandon laws? No, but we cannot be known for all the things that we want to push away and stand against and run away from. We can't be those people. We should be on the front lines going, let's just go down there and minister to them and see if they don't come to Jesus and change the world. That's what we should do. But instead of doing that, what we do is we sit on our lazy Christian butts and we do nothing and then we say block everybody from coming in. That's what we do. We're missing it. There's more than two options. Did you know that, church? There's more than build a wall, don't build a wall. There's more than those things. There's actually get off our butts and minister. I'll clap for myself. I don't care, right? That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. When it comes to loving the people next to us, you know what's so amazing about loving your neighbor? You don't get to pick your neighbor. And guess what happens in our world today? Your neighbor is probably like LGBTQIA plus something else. Love them. What's your problem? Well, well, God doesn't like it's tough nookies, right? He loves them and he wants you to love them. Does that mean in any way, shape, or form we have to accept sin? No, we don't. I want you to know something that the church is screwing up royally. You might be. I know I am. Um, when it comes to showing grace to people, when it comes to loving people, <clears throat> we have a problem because we say, if I love that person, it's going to come across as me condoning their sin. How many of you have heard this? How many of you have said it? If I love them, it's going to be condoning their sin. Do you know how God loved you? <laughs> this is going to be funny. Sorry, I'm completely off track and I don't care now. So anyway, this is, this is absolutely amazing. This is absolutely amazing. In Ephesians, this is the way God loves us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That sounds like a bleak picture, doesn't it? <laughs> but God... But God, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us while we were yet what? Sinners, enemies, yes. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raising us up with him, he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know who God is? God is the God who sees you as his, as his neighbor in all of your mire, and he abundantly displays grace. But he doesn't just say, I'm going to show you grace and tell you that I love you. He actually loves you enough 
to seat you next to him in this unshakable kingdom. How many of you suck at forgiving? I do, right? Because here's what I mean by forgiveness. I mean, I forgive you, but I don't want to ever see your goofiness ever again, right? <laughs> I, I was curtailing. Sorry, I was really working on that. Sorry. <laughs> All right? <laughs> right? I forgive you, but go die. That's what I mean by forgiveness, and it's a really pitiful thing. God says, not only do I forgive you, but I'm going to make you a co-regent. I'm going to make you rule and reign with me. How many of you in this room have that level of forgiveness just sitting? You're like, I got this. I don't got this. That's what you're supposed to do? I love it. You have that kind of forgiveness. It makes me happy. Anyway, okay. I will learn from you. I'm fine with that. But I don't have that forgiveness. And God, with his great mercy and the love with which he loved us while we were yet sinners, died for us. Listen, church. That's how an unshakable kingdom acts. That's how we're called to act. That's how we're called to live. That's what we're called to do. So I'm going to give you uh, my brief piece real quick because I find it fascinating. Uh, and that's it. It's just a geeky thing that I want to share with you before we leave uh, today. You belong to a kingdom. You belong to an unshakable kingdom. In that kingdom, you are also priests. Amen? This is a really important thing. You're priests. Do you know what? You know what was written on the foreheads of the priests in Exodus 28? That they were set apart, but the name of the Lord was there, right? They were declared as set apart, but they were also put on their heads was the name of the Lord. But it wasn't just any priest. I'm going to make sure to amend this really quick because I, I don't want you to go, that was not true. The high priest was the one with this on his forehead. Right? The high priest had belongs to the Lord, and the name of the Lord is on his forehead. It's a powerful, powerful image. Right? We're a kingdom. We're a part of a kingdom. It's an unshakable kingdom. And we're priests. Do you know what Revelation 22, 3 through 5 says? Look at this. This is really cool. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and read this with me. And his name will be on their foreheads. How many of you have ever read that and you're like, do we get tattoos in heaven? What's going on here, right? And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? It has everything to do with people who knew the Old Testament, right? What is this name on your forehead? You're not just a priest. You are in this place that Aaron was in as a high priest. And guess what the high priest did? The high priest once a year went into the presence of God. You know how often we get to walk into the presence of God? Anytime we want. We are a level of priest and we are becoming something that is so unbelievable that we get to walk with our creator no matter what. You know what it said about Sinai? It said they looked at the mountain and heard the thunder and they were struck with terror. You know what we do? We walk into his presence and we're grateful. That's what we're called to do. You guys, we are a part of the kingdom. It's an unshakable kingdom. We are priests and we get to meet with our king anytime we want. Guys, this is what Jesus finished 2,000 years ago when he said, it is finished. He completed it. You belong. So please leave here today with two things. Be grateful and stop trusting in things that will be shaken. Do you hear me? 
be grateful and stop trusting in the things that will be shaken. You can steward the things that will be shaken well, but do not trust in them. It will leave you disappointed and hopeless.